retipster.com. This is the RE Tipster Podcast. This show is all about using your limited time and energy to invest in real estate with lower risk and bigger rewards. If you want to build more financial freedom from real estate without putting your life savings on the line, this show is for you. Well, hello, everybody. This is Seth Williams from the RE Tipster Podcast, and welcome to show number 11. Can't believe we're at 11 episodes already. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, I have a really cool interview to share with you. I recently had a chance to talk with another real estate investor who goes by the name of Tamar Marr. And Tamar actually reached out to me uh, because she saw me on the Power Up Podcasting Facebook group. And for those of you who don't know, when I was figuring out how to put this podcast together, one of the resources that was really helpful to me was a course on how to start a podcast. And it was called Power Up Podcasting uh, by Pat Flynn. And anyway, uh, Tamar was also taking that same course and she was in that same Facebook group and she's also in the real estate investing space. So naturally we thought, hey, maybe I can be on your podcast and you can be on mine and we can both sort of share what we know with each other's audiences Uh, because the stuff that I do is very, very different than what she does and the stuff that she does is very different from what I do. And really what Tamara specializes in, I won't get too much into it because she'll explain it a lot better than I can, but essentially what she does is she invests in apartment buildings through something known as syndication. And syndication is essentially when you get together a group of investors and they all go in and purchase a property that's much larger than what any one of them would be able to do on their own. And usually there is at least one person in that group who's responsible for managing that. And in Tamara's case, she's the person that not only finds the deal and the opportunity and the value proposition, but also she is the manager of those properties. And she's got a lot of uh, really cool experience and just wisdom to share about that whole line of business. And also, uh, she uh, quit her job not too long ago to focus on real estate investing full-time. And if that's something that you have any aspiration to do, you probably know there can be a lot of like nervousness and fear tied to that decision to go full-time with this kind of profession. And in this interview, we really just talk about how she came to the conclusion that she was ready to do that and how she uh, walked through that process and how she was able to pull the plug on a job that frankly paid pretty well and had some pretty good benefits. So anyway, let's jump to this interview. You can listen in and I think you'll like it. Tamar, welcome. Thank you, Seth. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for those of of us out there who have not heard of you or don't know your story, maybe in a few minutes or however many minutes it takes, let us know what is your, what's your story? What's your background? How did you get into real estate investing? You mean not everybody knows who Tamar Mar is? I mean, I have a cool name. <laughs> Most of us do, but for the three of us that do not. <laughs> <laughs> totally kidding. I'm so not famous. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll share a little bit about myself. So, um, you know, I've been involved in real estate for years. I bought my first house when I was 19, believe it or not, which is so crazy because, you know, that's really what normal 19-year-olds do when they're working full-time and putting themselves through university full-time. <laughs> so uh, I've had a flair for real estate for some time, but <clears throat> we've had rentals. My husband and I have been married for 17 years, and we've had rental properties for 
most of our married life. And part of it was just accidental because we had moved into a house here in the Seattle area. And about a month after we moved in, I found out my job was taking us across the country to Minnesota for me to be an outside sales rep. And so we said, well, shoot, we'll just turn this thing into a rental. We, uh, bought a house out there and we used some of the proceeds to pay for both this mortgage and the other mortgage because it was in such a good market. Nice. And we moved back and it, it was a number of years this uh, after that until we took our next step. But about four years ago where the current story comes from is um, I had been the COO of a regulatory solutions company on Wall Street. And I loved it. The startup culture was amazing. I had been in startup culture for a really long time. I love growing businesses, but something stirred inside me to just say, ah, I know if I can do this for somebody else, help them grow their business into a multi-million dollar company, I can do it for myself. But the problem was I just didn't know what it was going to be that I wanted to have my own business with. It was like, I don't want to make artwork. I don't want to, like, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I just couldn't think of anything. And so my husband's family had been involved in real estate ever since he could remember all up and down the West Coast. And we had been talking for years about buying apartments and such. Um, but it sem seemed so big to us. Like, how would we even get into that, right? And so this idea of real estate clicked. And right around that time, I had read The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And I, there were all these stories about people that had, you know, portfolios of 100 rental properties and they were living off passive income. And that was the first time I really heard about this passive income concept. And I thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build up an empire of real estate for us to live off of eventually. <laughs> <laughs> And since I'm a person of massive action, it didn't take long before we started buying houses on auction, sight unseen, you know, working on them as a family together, turning them into rental properties. And we did that for about three and a half years. And then um, about a little over a year ago, December of 2016, I had one of those moments. I was a COO for a different company, a local company. And it, the thought came back to me about being wanting to have my own business because I had been doing all of this while working full time. So I just had this one day where I thought, you know what, this is it. I'm, I don't want to be anybody else's employee. I'm never going to be somebody else's employee again. I want to be the CEO of my own dreams, not somebody else's dreams. And uh, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I decided to quit my job. And don't just quit your job if you're a new real estate investor, or even <laughs> a mildly seasoned one. Luckily, my husband had income too, but I just knew that if I quit and I focused on growing our portfolio, I could do it in a much more impactful way than if I was working full time. So I did that and started focusing on syndications of multifamily uh, apartment buildings and have been growing my business massively in the last year and a half. So that's like a big picture idea of, of who I am and what I've been working on lately. It sounds like you're one of those people who is not afraid to take action, get uncomfortable, put yourself out there and make things happen. I know for a lot of people, they sort of lean one way or the other. Either they are an action-oriented person, and they sometimes even act like before they know what they're doing. And other people, well, I think more people actually that, that I know, will sort of just like spend all their time learning and just like mm. analyzing things before they ever take action, if they ever take action. So I'm wondering yeah. for somebody like yourself, who has clearly taken action, like, did you feel like you had enough information when you started moving or did you make any mistakes? Did you act too 
quickly with anything or? Yes to all of those things. So, uh, well, I don't think I acted too quickly. Here's something about me. I always act before I think I'm ready. Okay. I always act before I think I'm ready. And the reason why is because one of my favorite things to do in this life is to try stuff I've never done before and figure out how to make it happen. That whole process of like, there's this big thing and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm really smart and resourceful and I'm going to figure it out. That whole figuring it out process sets me on fire. It just makes me feel really alive and being uncomfortable. Like I I remember I, I started writing a, a blog article a while ago about learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That whole concept of like, it never feels good to Mm -hmm. be uncomfortable. But once you get through that process of now, look what I've achieved. And so it's almost like an addiction to that thing of let me just try something new. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and no, I don't think I knew everything that I needed to know, but does anybody ever know everything they need to know before they start something new? I don't think so. (laughs) No. And I had been researching and all real estate investing for, I don't know, before I started doing the syndication, I, I had been involved in it heavily for four years and through, you know, listening to bigger pockets and reading tons of books and blog articles and all this stuff. Um, but I, there's always something new to learn. So no, I still feel like today I, I don't know nearly everything. Yeah. That, when you were talking, that kind of reminded me of the uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. He said, mm. always do what you were afraid to do. I love that. I love that so much. I um, Last year was actually, I, I consider it to be probably the best year of my life. I think this year will top it, but <laughs> it was this amazing year. And it was, I think part of it was, it was because this unleashing of working on what I knew I could like chasing my dreams. Right. Mm-hmm. And we also bought a company last year as well. So I'm a business investor in addition to real estate investing. Okay. And, um, for some reason last year, I said, this is the year I'm going to start chasing my fears. And I just want to go after him with wild abandon. I always use the concept of like a bear as Mm -hmm. (laughs) like this big fear thing because I started backpacking last year again for the first time in 20 years. And, uh, (laughs) and I'm scared of bears, you know, I mean, like who isn't, I don't know. They're kind of freaky, but I just thought, you know what, I got to go this one time. I decided to choose a trail that the most bear activity was reported on because I said, I have to go do that to prove to myself that I can go somewhere where I know there's these things. So Mm -hmm. that when I actually see it, it's not going to be as bad as I think it is, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I love chasing fears. (laughs) Yeah. Bears are are things that I I lose sleep at night worrying about bears (laughs) going to kill me. So I understand. (laughs) So this whole decision to quit your job, um, what was, I mean, what was the hardest part about making that decision? Like, like what was it that clicked in your mind that said, okay, it's never been okay until now. Like now I'm ready. Was it like where you and your husband were at financially? Like were you just sort of comfortable or, or had you just like, did something happen and you just had enough? You were tired of working or what happened there? I think it was kind of a perfect storm of a number of things um, regarding the financially sound thing. That was the thing that I was the most scared about mm-hmm. because it's freaky giving up a, a, a really nice executive package. <laughs> yeah, for sure. uh, if nothing else, I mean, we've always tried to live off of one income so that I can do what I need to do at different times with, you know, we have three kids and stuff comes up and all this. And then my income has always been for play. 
for extracurricular activities, for investing, and for uh, you know travel and such. And mm-hmm. so it so we always kind of would make ourselves feel like we were tight so that we could invest a lot and do the things to set us up for our financial future. Yeah. But still giving that up, it's like a security blanket yeah, and it's freaky. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think um, both of us were freaked out about that, but we also knew that it was confident that I would be able to make up for it in no mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And so honestly it came down to, I think this conversation I had with somebody um, an, an old friend that I had worked with and we were in talks of me going back to her company to be the CEO in mm-hmm. on wall street. And we were actually in very heavy conversations about it. And through that whole process, I just had a moment after one of our conversations where I was like, this would mean we would have to move our family to New York. And I'm totally not a New York person. I'm a Pacific Northwest girl Mm -hmm. and um, live an intense life, work more than I really want to work. I don't want to work 60 hours a week, 80 80 hours a week. And then it just hit me after that conversation that, no, I don't want to be the CEO of somebody else's dreams. Like it's just, so it was, it was, there was a moment where I was like, okay, this is it. And there was also some other stuff going on as well at that time where we were in the process of buying a company and some other things. So no one thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's, that's helpful to, to hear all that. Yeah. So just curious, this company you guys bought, what, what is that? Yeah. Does that play in at all to the real estate thing or is it just a totally separate entity? Totally that's- separate. It's a high-end specialty fitness equipment retailer. So we mm-hmm. sell, if you think of really nice equipment to put into somebody's home gym. Um, We sell that, so strength and cardio and accessories. And then we also do it for commercially. So for hospitality and apartment complexes and corporate gyms and police officer gyms and that sort of stuff. So Mm -hmm. uh, my cousin had been working at that company for about 13 years and the founder of it, he had built it almost 40 years prior and he was in his seventies and he was like, I'm done. I want to be done with this thing. I'm either closing it down in three months or I'll sell it to you, Adam, who's my cousin. So Adam came to us and he's like, you guys are the most business savvy people we know. I know. And I would just love your advice. And it ended up morphing into this conversation of how about we help you out to to get this taken care of. So I don't have a lot of uh, day-to-day responsibilities with that company. I I work more on the back end with the finances, but Mm -hmm. my cousin's growing that thing and we grew at 38% in our first year. Wow. Nice. Good job. That's awesome. <laughs> so we're we're having fun with it for sure. And it's been really cool to grow relationship with with my cousin as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, side note. So you guys sell like uh, treadmills and that kind of thing? We do. Okay. Yeah. Yep. My wife and I just, I would have bought it from you if I had known, but we, we just bought a new treadmill and it got delivered to our house yesterday. Oh, I didn't realize how heavy those things were. Ours was 300 yeah. pounds. And yeah, they're pretty beefy. Yeah, we, we were trying to get it down a flight of stairs and I, I'm not even joking. Like I almost broke both my legs in the process. It was like, it was like sitting down. in my lap as I was trying to scoot <laughs> it down. It was a nightmare, but oh, we, no. we, we barely did it. So, Oh, well done. <laughs> yeah, anyway, just a warning out there. Anybody who buys a, a commercial grade treadmill, they are yeah. incredibly heavy. <laughs> Have somebody bring it into the house for you. It's totally worth the white yeah. glove delivery service fee. <laughs> yeah. It, it to- I, I think it was like, like 500 bucks or something. We could have had somebody do it. And like, honestly, 
Wait, it's not, it's not like a lot to me. I don't realize it'd be that much money. And that's why we didn't end up doing that. But after that yeah. experience, it's like, oh my gosh, like I'd rather not die. So maybe it is worth it. Yeah. Dying isn't worth it. Yeah, yeah, not at all. <laughs> or breaking both of your legs for that matter. Yeah. Or yeah. You use the treadmill that you were going to buy. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. I kind of need those things. Um, so this whole, going back to this whole thing of, of leaving your job and I know like when I left my job, something that I just agonized over for the longest time was kind of like just a risk assessment. Like, did I have the income to do this? Like, what if everything just fell apart the day after I quit? Like, then what? Like, yeah. just really the, all the sustainability of that. It sounds like for yourself, um, you know, your, your husband was working as well and your income was kind of like, you know, extra income for fun, which is, there's something to be said for that. Right. But it's not like you would have been like homeless on the street. If, no, we weren't going to be homeless. Nope. nope. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's really a smart way to do it. There are some people who kind of like just love the thrill of doing their own thing and just like burning bridges as they walk out the door, that kind of thing. And, uh, and those are, those are kind of like the things that you hear stories about most often, like, cause those are the most like riveting stories. Like, Oh, look what he did. The stakes were so high and he pulled it off. But, in real life, like it's probably smarter to just like make sure you're ready to go and it's going to be okay before you pull the plug on the job. Would you agree? Yeah. And not only that, if you are doing this for real estate investing, there's this whole thing called financing, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you are a solo entrepreneur, you don't have a spouse or a business partner and you're doing this, let's say in single family housing, you cannot get qualified for a loan based off of the merits of the property alone. You can't, you have to have W2 income or a bunch of passive income that will cover all your living expenses plus all the extra risk associated with that property on your tax returns from the prior year. Not only that, but they want to have two years of tax returns showing all that information. So that's something to be really prepared for. If if you are a solo entrepreneur and you are not married and you don't have a business partner, you, you got to build up your portfolio first. Mm-hmm. With commercial investing, it's different, of course, because the lending is based primarily off of the merits of the property, the experience of the investor, and the net worth of the investor, and the liquidity reserves of the investor. So even though if, let's just say, my husband quit his job, we could probably still get commercial financing for five or more units. <clears throat> on apartment buildings because of our liquidity, our net worth, and our experience as investors. That said, it's way easier to get it done when you still have a W-2 income to mm-hmm. just kind of back things up and show that you have some extra reserves coming in when you need yeah. them. So hmm. I, uh, it, it's something to think through big time. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, that's, uh, that's good to hear that perspective. Yeah. So I... I just help us understand, like when you quit your job and even today, mm-hmm. like how many properties do you own yourself? And, mm-hmm. and I think some of these properties you work on are syndicated deals. So like you don't necessarily yeah. own all of it, but do you own like parts of it or how does that yeah. work? Yeah. So we had a portfolio of single family houses that we had worked on acquiring from auction and we are systematically selling those off right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to sell off the remaining two this year. And the reason why we're doing that, just as a side note, is because the market is so hot yeah. in the Seattle area and we like to sell when it's high and buy when it's low. Mm-hmm. That's not always the sentiment of the market. Mm-hmm. 
And um, we also are using those proceeds to pay off our primary residence mortgage so that we can reduce our living expenses as much as possible and then be able to have my husband walk away from his job, hopefully sooner rather than later because of all of our passive income that we have because then it's less requirements that you have, right, to Mm -hmm. financial requirements. Um, Okay, and then I just got sidetracked because what was your first question as related to that? Basically, just trying to understand like how many how many units you. Oh own right, okay, and, and, okay, yeah, yep. So we sold off. We're selling off our single family and focusing on on multifamily. And the multifamily I've purchased, um, I've had like five units under con or five apartment buildings under contract in the last nine months. We ended up going through with two of them, and one of them. Um, when you do syndication. The managing partner, which would be me and my company, the Maroda Group, you receive an equity stake in that deal for putting together the deal and all the work up front and being the, the sponsor and signing for the loan and, and uh, all of this, right? And, so and actually, usually, actually, before you go any further, for those out there who don't know what syndication means, yes. what is syndication? Okay, great question. So syndication simply means that they're, uh, at, at its very simplest level, it's a group of investors that come together to buy a property. So in the syndication model that's talked about more frequently, sometimes there's large syndicators and smaller ones, but you have usually one person or a, a team of a couple of people, business partners, that go out they find an opportunity for investment, scour the market, usually for something that's, uh, you know, rents are under market or there's deferred maintenance. It's a value add property. And then they, those business partners or that individual, they go out to their network and they find other like-minded people that would like to invest alongside them in this particular asset. And those other investors, they are limited partners and they are basically buying shares of the LLC or the company. And then the LLC then purchases the asset. So they are all limited partners in an LLC. And it's strictly passive investing for the individuals that are limited partners. So they have, say, usually, let's say, it depends on the operating agreement that's drawn up, but maybe if there's decisions over $100,000, like if there's going to be a sale or a refinance, then a vote would go to the members of the LLC. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's, I'm going to collect my quarterly cash flow distributions or whenever they come along for, mm-hmm. depending on the operating agreement. And then the managing partner decides on all of the day-to-day operations, works with the property manager, um, you know, works on the business plan, the strategy, any renovations, works with your le- the lenders to make sure that's all under control, works with the attorneys, any sort of vendors that you need to work with as part of this asset acquisition, the managing partner takes care of. And that's what you have been with these deals, right? That's what I have been with these deals. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and are you the one, you're the one who's essentially finding the opportunities as well, right? And, and making yes. the offers and negotiating and all that stuff. Yeah. And so I use that uh, a variety of sources for that. I try to make great relationships with brokers that are in the markets that I want to invest in. And um, I haven't done any mailings yet. I'm on the verge of maybe doing some of that stuff. Most of my stuff is just through relationships and Mm -hmm. visiting the markets that I like investing in and setting up meetings with people that I haven't met before. 
And um, I found stuff on LoopNet before, but and then through broker connections. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in terms of these other investors, like where are you finding them? Or say, say if somebody has money and they want to get in on a project like this, whether it be with you or somebody else out there like you, yeah, where would somebody go to find these kind of opportunities if they've got the money but they don't want to have their hands in the mud, so to speak? Yeah. Okay. So let's say somebody has money and they want to invest. You can do some searches under um, multifamily investing and usually the really large players will pop up and Mm -hmm. you can even type in the city or the the market that you want to be involved in. Um, And then another avenue might be to go to some local real estate meetups, uh, specifically multifamily or commercial. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that's common in the single family or flipping space. You can use private money to lend money for them on those types of deals, but totally different asset class. Um, And what I would suggest is vet them like crazy. Like, you know, you're going to be hanging out with these people, so to speak, for a number of years. It could be anywhere from 12 months to 10 years that mm-hmm. you are alongside them for this for this ride on an asset. So ask a lot of questions. You got to feel like you can trust them. A lot of times I've done this where I've reached out to um, multifamily investors who syndicate because I want to, I always am a big fan of learning from people that have been further along than me. So Mm -hmm. I've invested with other people and I've researched a lot of other people and there's some people I get on the phone. I'm like, "Eh, don't want to do business with them. They're just Mm -hmm. treating me like I'm a dollar sign. Mm-hmm. and they're just trying to get me off the phone as fast as possible. And then there's other people that are really, really interested in you. What is, um, what are your investing goals? What are you trying to do this for? Is it for funding um, your the college education for your kids or your grandkids? Is it for your dream retirement home? Is it so you can tr- quit your job and travel the world? Is it so that you can just, I don't know, what are, what are the goals? Like it's really important for the syndicator to ask those types of questions because you want to make sure that what the asset is going to perform, how it's going to perform is going to line up with meeting those goals. Mm-hmm. In terms of me finding investors, um, a variety of ways, you usually start out with your personal network, friends and family, coworkers, past coworkers, um, and then beyond there, uh, investor clubs. I go to a lot of those meetings and connect with as many people as possible. Referrals from other professionals like brokers, insurance agents, lenders, um, property managers. Those are all great resources for finding investors. And then the key that I've heard, and I'm, I'm almost to that point, is that once you have a property that performs really well and your investors are receiving some very decent returns, they'll start telling their friends about it. Because no, if, if, like, if you invest $100,000 in a property and there's a, a big rehab and a refinance that's done a year later and you get back, let's say, even 75% of your money in a year or two years. So you have $75,000 back. And, and I'm not saying this is a real scenario. I'm just saying hypothetically. But, um, and then you still own the piece of the property and so you're still getting your cash flow, mm-hmm. but you can then turn around and reinvest those dollars in something else. Do you think you're going to tell your friends about it? Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. That uh, in terms of like, like what makes or what would you consider to be a good return for one of these investors? 
Like, yeah. I, I know sometimes I'll look around at uh, crowdfunding sites like Realty Shares or Fundrise or something like that. And, you know, usually the returns that people can get on those kinds of deals are anywhere from 8% at the low end, assuming things don't fall apart to, mm-hmm. I don't know, 12%-ish, maybe a little bit higher. Um, and I, I don't think that's normal, but like it could potentially be that high if all the stars align. Um, so I mean, what, it feels what really is, low to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and that's probably because it's so stinking easy. Like you don't have to do anything other than just inject yeah. money and wait for it. But um, yeah. somebody's putting in a lot more money with somebody like you, like what kind of return would they be getting? Yeah. My minimum for me to even consider putting an offer on a deal is an IRR, an internal rate of return of 13 to 15%. And even that feels low to me. Mm-hmm. And just to explain what IRR is, uh, the internal rate of return calculates a number of different factors into that formula. And I may not say this 100%, right? But it's not just your cash on cash return. It's what are your you know, annual cash flow. What if you refi after a couple of years, the appreciation and the sale of the asset. So if you're holding the asset for 10 years and over the life of that asset, all of these things happen, that would be your average IRR. Your average return would be 13 to 15%. So Mm -hmm. that's what I look at is a combination of all those factors. And, um, uh, the deals that I've done have been either upper teens or low twenties. So, mm-hmm. and I even have one right now that'll probably be more like 29% IRR cause it bought oh. a crazy deal. So, um, it, I, it, it depends on the riskiness of the project. I've looked at some that have been a little bit more stabilized assets and the returns aren't as good, but they're solid, like you know, they're 100% occupied property and they probably are not going to appreciate very much, but they'll be fully occupied because of where they're located and such. And um, some, uh, oddly enough, I had a couple of investors who turned down that particular deal because they said it just doesn't feel risky enough for us, maybe in oh, 10 wow. years. <laughs> and that was probably projecting a solid 13% return. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. In mm-hmm. um, you might have already said this, maybe I missed it, but the plan with these properties, is it for you to get in, improve them and sell them off at a certain point or is it more to hold them long-term? Yeah, I model my holds out for 10 years and it's not some magic scenario. Mostly for me, it's because I know that on average, a real estate cycle can last between eight and 12 years on average around 10 years, right? So if I'm going to purchase an asset, I want to make sure that I'm holding on to it long enough uh, in the event that there was a downturn, it would give some time to come back up. So I don't, I never want to plan to sell something in five years because I don't know what's going to happen in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I love the idea of passive income, passive cash mm-hmm. flow. And so I want to have properties that are providing me that as much as possible. So I don't like selling short term. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, part of a job of a syndicator is to make sure that you're maximizing opportunities for your investors. So let's say you buy a property that has some massive improvements to be done. You do some renovations, you raise the rents a bunch. Uh, it's now at market. It's a stabilized property. 
you know, you could present it to your investors and say, hey, we can get this much if we sell it right now. What would you guys like to do? Or, or let's refinance out and get you 100% of your cash back. Mm-hmm. So those, I think that that's the job of a good syndicator to present opportunities and receive the feedback in order to make the necessary decisions. Mm-hmm. So if one of your investors wants to get out for some yeah. reason, mm-hmm. like, is it, is that even an option or do they just kind of have to be patient? Like, how does that work? Um, everything is always an option. There's always ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, it's really, usually when you're getting into these types of opportunities, there's an understanding that it's until the property is sold that mm-hmm. you'll be done. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody did want to get out, there are clauses usually worked into an operating agreement that say uh, the current members have first right of refusal to Mm -hmm. purchase your shares. Mm -hmm. And if none of them want it, you can go out and find an external person to invest. But that person usually needs to be improved, uh, uh, improved, approved Mm -hmm. by the current members. Okay. And in terms of like, uh, like are you, are you essentially doing like conventional bank financing to get these properties? It depends on the size of the loan. So if it's under, um, if it's a small balance loan under a million dollars, it's going to be oftentimes with a community bank or such. If it is over a million dollars, the loan balance, it'll be a Fannie Mae or Freddie, Mae, uh, Freddie Mac product that you'd be working with. Uh, okay. Usually non-recourse debt. Okay. And so does anybody have to be a guarantor on any of these loans? Nope. Um, None of the limited partners need to be. That is purely the responsibility of the managing partner. And if the managing partner does not meet the criteria to be the sole guarantor on it, then they would have to bring in a key principal, which would basically be somebody that would just, they can bring their balance sheet to the table that has Mm -hmm. additional net worth and liquidity requirements to back up the requirements that the bank has for the loan. Okay. So, so you are not currently a guarantor on any of these. I am. Yes. Okay. But none of my limited partners are. Okay. I got you. Mm -hmm. And those commercial loans, they're typically on a five-year term, right? And then they renew if the bank wants to continue the relationship, right? It depends. You can do three-year, five-year, seven-year, 10-year fixed. Sometimes there's a balloon payment after the end. Oftentimes it's either a 25-year or 30-year amortization schedule. So, you know, I, I listen a lot to the sentiments around the nation of what people are saying we should do. And usually it's around this time, it's get seven or 10-year fixed money, mm-hmm. <laughs> fixed interest rate money, because we don't, the, the rates are so low right now. And the worst thing that can happen is if I get a three-year fix and something happens in three years, and the rates go up three percentage points. And I, that's when I was planning to refinance. And now I can't refinance because that screws with my financial projections because of the debt service. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's no bueno is what yeah. that is. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a proponent for some fixed, uh, fixed interest pricing mm-hmm. for a longer term. Yeah. Yeah. I know I was in uh, commercial banking, you know, back at, you know, from 2007 to 2000. 15 really was kind of like the years I was in it. And in those bad real estate recession years, there were a lot of, we we didn't do like apartment financing or anything like that. It was mostly small businesses that were going to occupy the real estate, but there were, there were lots of businesses that 
banks were just kicking out left and right. And like the businesses were doing fine, but the bank was like, well, we decided we don't like this industry anymore. So uh, yeah. just because of that, you're gone. Like it was nuts what banks were doing. Luckily, I think a lot of those companies, if they were good companies, like they found somebody else who would take them on. But if they were struggling, like they were done. They were out of business just because banks wouldn't renew their, their uh, loans with them. So it was pretty yeah. ugly time. Super ugly. The nice thing about multifamily assets, banks love lending on them. So if you're not in a primary market, if you're in a secondary or tertiary market, you have you might have to work a little bit harder to find a bank that will lend to a property in a smaller town. But that said, the risk profile for a multifamily property is so much lower as compared to single family housing because you're spreading the risk across, let's say you have a 50-unit building. Well, even if there's a 10% vacancy on it, you still have 45 other tenants paying the rent yeah. in, mm -hmm. and there's no way you're not going to be able to debt service yeah. on that. So yeah. it's nice right now. Everybody needs a place to live. Uh, we are moving more towards a nation of renters than of homeowners. <laughs> mm -hmm. We can't keep up with the housing demand to build enough single family houses. And so it's a solid asset class to invest in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can totally see why banks would be, you know, more flexible with that type of property than say like a Best Buy or like a Walmart where there's like one tenant and there's not a lot of them that can occupy that specific type of property. <laughs> like, yes. I could see how that's substantially more risk for a lender than an apartment building for sure. Yeah. I've looked at purchasing some properties that have, that are multi-use where you have the commercial space down below and then the multifamily upstairs and upstairs units. And uh, even that makes me nervous because, mm -hmm. you know, those commercial spaces, even if they're a thousand square foot or 2000 square feet, they can still be really hard to, to lease up. Mm -hmm. So one question that comes to my mind, I mean, it sounds like part of what makes these deals work is you're somehow finding ways to, you know, bring value to the table with each property, whether you're, so I guess what I would wonder is, like, are you just buying them really cheap or is there a specific way that you're improving properties? Are you like making improvements and then increasing rent? Like, how is it that you're getting this kind of return for you and your investors? I think the perfect storm for me is to find a property that's a solid C-class property uh, and the rents are a couple hundred dollars a door under market that has mm -hmm. been owned by kind of a mom and pop shop, maybe a family, maybe a retired couple has owned it, who knows, but usually uh, not institutional investors, right? Like somebody that's just held on to it for a long time and maybe hasn't done the best job managing it in terms of like keeping up with market rents yeah. or maybe they got really sick of making renovations and they didn't have a property manager. So there's some deferred maintenance. So that combination of mismanagement, uh, rents under market, and those interiors could really use some, some facelifts, right? Mm -hmm. And if you do the facelifts, you bring in a new tenant profile. The beautiful thing is when you do that with multifamily, the price of that property is based off of your net operating income. So just to give you an example, um, I'm just about ready to come full circle on a property that I purchased last July, the end of July, 2017. It's a 15 unit property. 
Rents were about $300 a door under market. So market was about $750, $775. The average was $450 a door. Wow, man, that sounds <laughs> way under. I know. And uh, the, the same family had owned it for about a decade, right? They didn't have a property manager. They were mm. just kind of ready to liquidate and sell it off. And the insides, they weren't horrible. It's not like it was slumlord situation, but they definitely needed some TLC. So we went in on that one. We decided to raise rents, not to full market, but to, I think it was about $200 we raised rents and we decided, okay, whoever stays, cool. Whoever doesn't stay will renovate those units at that time. So Mm -hmm. we had five tenants the first month that left two the following month, and three the next month. So 10 out of 15. So we just got done renovating those. And because of the increased value, we've put in about $3,500 a door approximately with, let's just say, paint, new uh, vinyl plank flooring, some new fixtures, fixed up the countertops and cabinets just with, you know, like a light paint and Mm -hmm. maybe some new appliances, really simple stuff. Well, I bought that for 825000 okay? And because I've increased the net operating income by, well, let's see, I think I increased rents $45,000 annually by all of that. Our property is now worth almost $1.3 million. And that's just from July of 2017 to now we're talking, it's basically March 1st right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. That that is amazing. It's I remember one of the first stories I ever heard about Donald Trump. Like the first deal he ever did, he made a million bucks just by. I think he like bought a property and raised everybody's rent twenty bucks a month and then sold it without doing anything to it or something like yes. that. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, just just raising rents like that, especially if you have a, an easily justifiable way to do it that the market will support. Like, man, that's that is serious power. It's really cool. It's super cool. Yeah. I love it. I'm addicted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I know somebody like me, I don't like debt. Like it just yeah. bothers me. I just don't want it in my life. Yeah. And, but at the same time, like I'd love to get to the point where I'm doing what you're doing on this scale. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things like, I'm sure I probably could, but like this disdain for debt has always held me back from doing that. I'm yeah. wondering like, how do you get comfortable with debt like that? Is it just like a, a mind game? You just need to get over it. I don't know. Like, what's your secret? Have you ever been uncomfortable with the amount of debt on each property or does it just not really bother you? So I do not love personal debt at all. And we have none of it. My husband mm-hmm. and I, we don't have credit card debt. All we have is our primary residence. We never have loans on cars. We pay cash for everything, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to personal finances and debt, no, thank you. Right. And we're also working to pay down our mortgage as well, which we'll hopefully have taken care of this year. And I think about four or five years ago, I went through this phase of being like you for a long, long, long time where I was super hyper conservative when it comes to finances. And I would still consider myself pretty conservative with Mm -hmm. finances. That said, I started realizing the power of leverage and the power of leverage specifically as it pertains to um, acquiring assets and producing wealth. And the way that I got 
hooked on it was that we had been using our HELOC. We have a home equity line of credit on our primary residence and on one of our other properties as well. And we would use that to pay cash for single family houses so that our offers would be solid. We'd renovate them. We'd put renters in there. After six months, we'd refinance, put the conventional debt on the rental property and then pay ourselves back and pay off the HELOC. Mm -hmm. So if it weren't for that HELOC and using debt for that short term, we wouldn't be where we are today because of that risk that we could take. But it was calculated risk. We would only pay 70 to 75% of after repair market value for those Mm -hmm. properties. So we were smart. It's not like we would be clicking up and paying market value or even 90% value. No, we wanted to make sure that when we refinanced it, we'd have enough equity in there to pay ourselves back. Mm -hmm. So that really changed my perception because I saw how it, it, it directly impacted our net worth, our portfolio, like, and it's, um, enabled us to do a lot that we couldn't have done before. So with the multifamily stuff, I see that as not personal debt. That is debt that's on an asset. It's held by the LLC that we guarantee. And especially as I'm working towards getting larger balance loans that are non-recourse debt, they cannot come after, once it's non-recourse debt, they can only go after the asset. They can't go after me and all of my personal finances. Mm -hmm. So I am aiming towards only working on balances that are that large for the assets that I'm purchasing in the future. And that makes, uh, to be honest, it does feel kind of, ooh, I don't love the fact that we have a couple of $600,000 loans with our names on it because those Mm -hmm. ones are full recourse. However, I'm also the person that manages it. Mm -hmm. So I know that if I'm managing it, there's no way that I'm going to let that thing go to hell in a handbasket, right? (laughs) Yeah, you control. You're not just like powerless to the situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I I usually make pretty good decisions. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. you definitely have to feel comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And I know part of your ability to identify opportunities and places where you can add value to a property and increase cash flow. I imagine a lot of that has to do with being intimately familiar with whatever market you're working in, like what comparable units would rent for. Yeah. Um, so like are all of your properties in the Seattle area where you're at or like, like if they're in other markets, like how did you get familiar with those markets? How much time did you spend there learning those areas? Yeah, I do not invest in Seattle. Um, number one, because the landlord tenant laws here are horrific and it's just crazy being a landlord, but mm-hmm. also because it's hyper competitive and the cap rates are so condensed here that it's highly prohibitive to mm-hmm. make any decent returns. It's all speculative based off of property appreciation. And that's not what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look at least two counties away from the Seattle King County Metro area. You have a little, the prices will go down. You have a tiny bit less competition. The tenant profile is a little bit different, but again, everybody needs a place to live. So the areas that are within an hour of where I live, I know all of them well because I've lived in the Pacific Northwest more or less my whole life with the exception of like five years. Mm-hmm. But the place that I'm really interested in is um, is about four to five hours away, actually east of the mountains basically. Mm-hmm. And some of those cities I have not been to before some areas that I would like to invest in. So I will go over and spend time there. But the areas that I have invested in, I've just taken a couple of day trips and 
drove the neighborhoods, try to figure out, okay, which part of town is ick, steer clear, Mm -hmm. which part of town is the nicer areas, where are the multifamily units concentrated? Are they downtown? Are they, where are they? And so I got good feel for that just by driving neighborhoods. And even one day doing that was so enlightening because then at least if you're pulling it up on Google Earth or something, you're like, I've driven that neighborhood. I at least, you know, maybe not down that street, but I've been within 10 blocks of this area so I can have a general feel for it. And then leveraging relationships in those towns as well. So either through property managers or lenders or brokers and asking them, you know, can you be boots on the ground for me? Go check this out before I fly out or drive out five hours to go see a property. I think that's really valuable. And sometimes even I know people who live in those communities and I can just ask them to go drive by and take pictures or something. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like those uh, relationships are pretty darn important in that kind of business. I agree. Just out of curiosity, being a woman in the real estate investing business, do you ever feel like you're, I don't know, up against any particular challenges that a man would not have to deal with? Like do people treat you differently or anything like that? Have you noticed that kind of thing? Um. I feel like I'm the wrong person to ask that question only because I... <laughs> I've always hung out with dudes, right? Mm -hmm. Like my whole life, I just have a lot of guy friends and Mm -hmm. I was a total tomboy growing up and I don't really picture myself as like, you know, a woman working in a man's space. Although I (laughs) recognize it all the time because who am I going out to coffee with all the time? Dudes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who do I hear on podcasts and who do I see writing blogs and who's writing all the books? Dudes, you know? And -hmm. that's why I'm trying to get my voice into this space to empower other women that they can do this. I don't think it's impacted me one bit because as you can probably tell, I'm not super shy Mm -hmm. and um, I'm very driven. And so I think if you have that going for you and you're confident in your abilities that I'll go into whatever market, not even, you know, not just real estate, but I'll go into any industry and crush it because I know I'm capable of finding the resources that I need to find. Um, And it's also just not being intimidated that you're the only female that's showing up for meetings that are doing this or Mm -hmm. whatever it is, but it's definitely noticeable, but I don't let it affect me because it doesn't even, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, interesting. That said, I will say that I just got a quote back from a contractor and it was probably about four times higher than it needed to be. Oh, And I only know that because I've been doing this stuff for a long time and I've renovated our own houses. I've quite a few and we've done tons of flipping stuff. Like I know how much stuff costs and I swing hammers and I Mm -hmm. get dirty and I paint and all this stuff. And so- I don't know if that was one of those things where he's like, oh, it's east of the mountains and I have to bring everybody out there. Or if it's like, oh, well, she's a woman. I don't know. But I just, I don't just choose not to think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's great advice. I know like coming from the banking world, like I know that kind of chauvinism, that kind of thing, like that was there. Like I saw it pretty regularly too. But at the same time, like there were times I feel like people treated me differently simply because I was not speaking with confidence with what I was saying. Like Mm. people just kind of assumed I was clueless about certain things, not because I was, but because like I wasn't in your face about what I thought the answer was. And I, I think a lot of times it may not necessarily be a gender thing. Maybe it's just like a human thing. Like people are either respectful or disrespectful, respectful to each other 
based on like little subtleties and like, like body language and just tone of voice and things like that. So I guess, however you're treated, like the reaction is not like, oh, I'm a victim or it's because I'm a woman or because I'm this race or whatever that they're treating me this way. It's like, move on, respond with confidence <laughs> and, and just keep pushing the ball forward and don't let people get in your way. You know? And some people are just jerks. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> it might be nothing personal. Maybe they're, just... it, maybe they're like that to whoever they talk to. And I just choose not to do business with those people. Yeah. And so one other point I will say is mm-hmm. I, so I have three kids. Mm-hmm. I homeschool one of my three kids and he comes with me on business trips and business meetings all the time. And you know that in any industry, that would probably be frowned upon. But here's the thing. If somebody wants to do business with me, my kid comes along and in some, I'm sure some people frown upon that, but he is respectful. He's coming along. He's learning alongside his mom. He's learning crazy lessons that he would never be learning if he was sitting in the classroom at school. And we have conversations to back it up afterwards. And I don't even apologize. I don't apologize for it. I just say, hey. My apprentice is alongside me today. He's just going to be learning with us in our meeting. Mm-hmm. And I don't let it bother me. I mean, most of the time people are like, super cool, right on. Let's let him listen in or whatever. So I just like to do things a little bit differently. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like it's working for you. I don't think it's getting in the way. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. Well, with everything that you've done and all of your experience, just the different, different uh, I don't know, quirks of doing syndication deals and that kind of thing. What would you say is the hardest part about making all of this work? Like what's the biggest pain for you or or the biggest difficulty in making this all happen? Well, I think it's different at different times. Right now, I really want another deal because I have a bunch of investors lined up and I Mm -hmm. want a deal and I keep finding deals that just are not solid deals. So I'm not going to take them just because they're coming across my desk. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that can be the pain where it's like, oh, either you have a bunch of investors and no deal, or you have this deal that come across your desk and you're like, oh, junk, I got to find some more (laughs) investors. So I think it's that combination of connecting the two, those two pieces together Uh that can be somewhat challenging. Um, Otherwise, I don't know. It's not even a huge angsty thing. And there's nothing else that really bothers me. I love what I'm doing. I, it's a relationship business. And it's I love seeing how I can transform communities by the work that we're doing, by providing better quality of housing, you know, cleaning up neighborhoods and and impacting the lives of the investors that I work with in a big way. Yeah. You know, the cool thing about your response to that question is that it's almost like you had to like search hard or think hard to think of what was so hard about it. Sort of tells me you're not the kind of person that sits around and just agonizes about what's hard. Like you're just focused on no. finding solutions and moving forward. And there's something to be said for that. I, I can't say I'm always that way. Sometimes I just get hung up on things and I'm just like, oh, I hate this. You know, <laughs> If I thought more like you and just like focused on like solving the problem, it would probably not be a problem anymore. So that's pretty cool. I like that. Thanks for saying that. I think the more we can focus on finding solutions for anything, the better, the more successful we're going to be in life. And it's the more that we can find solutions for other people's problems, Mm. the more successful we're going to be in life. Yeah, for sure. Makes sense Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Well, Tamar, if people want to find out more about you, get a hold of you for anything, anything like that, where should they go? 
Yeah. Well, you can certainly pop on over to my podcast, which is the Investing for Life podcast. It's on iTunes and Stitcher, or you can go to investingforlifepodcast.com or my company webpage, which is the um, marotagroup.com, M-A-R-O-T-A group.com. Yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, link to both of those uh, things in the show notes for uh, this episode. So if you want to just quick get there, you'll have a link there as well too. So Cool. Well, Tamara, anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? Hey, just go out there and crush it, friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) I totally appreciate your time and appreciate all the listeners out there for tuning in and checking out this conversation. Hope you guys got something out of it. And uh, yeah, we will talk to you in the next episode. Sounds great. Thanks, Seth. You bet. Thanks. So there you have it. That's the whole interview with Tamar. I hope you enjoyed that. I learned a bunch of stuff from that, things that uh, I really don't deal with in my business on a regular basis. But what I kind of like about Tamar is what she's doing, it's sort of like where I want to go long term, not necessarily like managing the property, but getting involved in some way, shape or form with bigger types of properties that produce ongoing passive income, whether they be apartment complexes or self-storage facilities or farmland, things like that. She's just doing things that are on a much larger scale while also using the power of financial leverage, which can be extremely powerful if you know how to use it right. So super cool interview. Again, if you want to check out the show notes from this episode, please do. Please go and check out the blog at retipster.com forward slash 11 because this is episode number 11 so that's retipster.com forward slash 11 and uh, you'll find the original video interview from youtube and a bunch of links to tamar's website and her podcast and a bunch of the other things that we uh, mentioned in, in the interview and as a side note while you're on the blog if you're at all interested in learning more about some of the most important and viable tools that i use in my business on a daily basis I've actually got a free ebook that I put together that details all that stuff where I show you exactly what I use, why it's so helpful, and even in some cases, some places where you can get this stuff for free or at a discount. So if that's of any interest to you, please go check it out. The ebook is called Investor Hacks, and I've got a little sign-up opt-in form on the right sidebar of the website. And really, if you sign up for the email list anywhere, you'll get a link to that ebook. So definitely check that out if that's uh, something you want to learn more about. Just thought I'd mention that in case uh, you want to learn a little bit more about what's been working for me. But that concludes this episode. Again, I want to thank you guys for sticking with me and uh, listening in on this conversation I had with Tamar. Hope you liked it. I certainly had a good time talking to her. If you want to follow along with future episodes, then by all means, please subscribe to the podcast and you'll uh, be notified whenever the next episodes come out. And you know, if you are enjoying this or if you're not enjoying this, I'd love to hear your feedback on it. If you have a couple minutes, please swing by iTunes and leave me an honest review. Whether you're liking this or not, I want to hear what you think about it. I read every single review that comes through there and your opinion does matter to me a lot. I appreciate having you as a listener, as a reader, as a viewer, as a subscriber, Anything you're doing to follow along with what I've got going on at retipster.com means a lot to me. Stay strong, stay diligent, keep pushing forward, and I'll talk to you next time.
Thanks for listening to the RE Tipster Podcast. For a full summary of this episode, stocked with links, show notes, and a lot more, check out the podcast archive page at retipster.com forward slash podcast.